Hey, you are listening to The Workplace Leader. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Wendy Heller. Wendy is a real estate transformation leader at Deloitte Consulting. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking to Wendy Heller, who I met through a colleague, basically, because she was on a panel with one of my colleagues. And then I reached out to talk to her directly as well. And that's why she's here today. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Sabine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Likewise. I usually start with, I call it housekeeping, getting our audience up to speed with what your role is and your professional background. Sure. Yeah, I'd I'd be happy to share. So I am a senior manager with Deloitte Consulting's real estate and location strategy practice. I specialize working with corporate real estate clients, really on workplace strategy, real estate operating model design, performance measurement, right? Looking at how do we identify whether our real estate a real estate portfolio is bringing the best to the company and aligning to their broader goals. So who are your typical stakeholders then? It's a good question. I would say we work across the breadth of the organization. One of the things that I think has been kind of interesting in the last several years, you know, I've been doing this for working in this area for around 15 years. And 10, 15 years ago, we largely saw real estate reporting into the CFO, I would say over the last five to eight years, and especially since the pandemic, we've seen a a shift that, you know, so that workplace and, you know, sometimes the entire real estate organization is now more aligned to either the, you know, chief operating officer, the CAO, you know, chief administrative officer, or, you know, chief people officer, right? We're seeing the interest in how workplace aligns to a company's cultural objectives, something that's really on the radars of of many, many, many organizations. And so as a result, the measures are not purely financial. They're really about how do you shift to thinking about using your workplace, using your real estate footprint to further your cultural goals as well. I'm actually realizing that I kind of jumped to the next question without diving into your professional background further. Oh, no worries. So I'll happily go back and share. So my professional background, I am a trained interior designer. I have a master's in interior design from the Savannah College of Art and Design, which I started pursuing right in the early 2000s and decided that I was making a career switch. I actually started my career in education and decided that helping people and companies develop the types of spaces that made them feel most fulfilled was where I wanted to go in life. And so I earned the degree from SCAD and really specifically was focused on what I would then didn't really call, but now would call evidence-based design. I've never been super interested in, is it the right color? Is it the right type of furniture here or there, or let's make sure that we have the right egress path, right? All the things that interior designers are worried about. And of course, there's many, many more. 
But I was much more interested in how do we know that a space is going to work for the inhabitants? How do we measure whether or not it is productive, right? Or it's doing what it was designed to do. And so that's really been the core of what I've been interested in for many years. And so I've been with Deloitte for four years. Prior to coming to Deloitte, I spent four plus years working for the Coca-Cola company, leading their workplace strategy and occupancy planning functions. So I spent two years working on the workplace strategy design for the Atlanta headquarters, and then two years thinking about developing, scaling the program to a, a global audience. And prior to that, I spent a number of years, seven plus years working for Steelcase. I worked for around five years in what I would classify as applied design, and then two years working with the design community, leveraging research to develop the right product solutions for clients. So that's my, in a, let's call it two minute, five minute nutshell, my professional background. Yeah. You mentioned anterior design, which is actually bringing me to a something I like to ask as well, that is, A, at your organization, what's the most common workplace configuration slash work models you're utilizing? And then on a more personal level, what do you appreciate about the office as an environment? So it's, I would say this question is, and I'm hesitating, I'm trying to think about how I want to classify this, but I think this is one of the questions that's really driving the change in our office environments. So I think if you would ask this question to me or probably many of my colleagues five or 10 years ago, we would have said, well, there's palette of places, right? To use a, an old term, there's lots of different types of configurations and one size doesn't fit all, but there's some standards and okay, you'll have benching over here and you'll have a few collaborative spaces and technology is great, right? Like that would, it was sort of like very bare bones. I think now because there's so much focus and energy on creating meaningful egalitarian experiences for those who are in the office, for those who are remote, for those who are, you know, working across distance or working with the person right next to them. I think that the interplay between the physical and the virtual or the physical and the digital is critically important. And I think there's nowhere that that really comes through as much as in collaborative spaces. So, you know, when you ask about what is the most common workplace configuration for our organization. So for Deloitte, we're a professional services company. Our offices, especially for Deloitte Consulting, in the past, they would have been largely underoccupied most of the week because we would be off working with our clients and then very, very busy on, you know, Thursday, Friday, right toward the end of the week when everyone is back in their home cities. And I would say that would have been the case across individual and collaborative spaces. Now, I think where our clients are often, you know, not asking us to be on site three or four days a week, right? Like we're, we're working from anywhere, just like many other organizations and industries. And we do travel, we do show up and collaborate in person with our clients for what I, you know, what we like to call moments that matter, right? So the things that are most meaningful, that co-location and in-person collaboration really takes you to the next level, things like workshops or 
sharing a like meaty deliverable or thinking about at the outset of a project, like what are our shared goals, right? Those are the types of things that sometimes bring us together. And then the rest of the time, we're largely distributed. Both of those work postures really rely on really well-designed, meaningful, enabled by meaningful technology collaboration spaces. So I think that whereas in the past, a lot of real estate leaders would look at a footprint and say, all right, well, there's, we'll do 70-30, 70% me space, 30% we space, it'll be good, we'll have enough, or some other sort of general framework. I think now we're seeing a lot of organizations struggling with the spaces that they had designed in the past, because it doesn't align to that in-person hybrid collaboration need. Either they're not outfitted with the right types of technologies, so there isn't a meaningful, real-time, visual and audio connection in every space, or there isn't enough of those types of spaces, right? Even if they are good, there isn't enough. And so I would say both for Deloitte and for what I personally prefer, I think the attention to collaborative space and specifically thinking about how people want and need to connect when they're together. And even when you have that hybrid experience, that to me is the most critical type of workplace environment right now for an organization. You said we need to know if a space is is good for people. And I think that's the main question that's now circling around. So how do you know what makes the space useful for people and how What are the indicators for that, basically? So how can you find out that the things that you put in place are good or the right thing to do? And I guess it's like coming from your interior design background, you said you've always had an interest in that. How's yeah. your view on that? So it's a great question. I think as we think about how do we identify you know, the right types of spaces, the right number of spaces, doing deep dive analysis, becomes even more important. And so I think the first place I would say it's important to start is looking at what is an organization's objectives when it comes to those spaces, because no organization has exactly the same goals as another. So thinking about, is your typical collaboration pattern two or three people? Is it five or six people? What do you anticipate? Creating that hypothesis and then measuring whether it's via you know, a tool like Locati, whether it's via sensor, just general sensor, whether it's via sort of a combination of qualitative and quantitative, right? What do the residents say they want? And then what, how did they feel about the space, whether it's, you know, via simple smiley face, ambivalent face, frowny face, right? Like the very bare bones but often pretty meaningful mm-hmm. measurement of the qualitative, but then also using that sensor data or occupancy data or, you know, however it's gathered to look at what are the quantitative patterns. Because I think the, as we think about the future and we think about measuring so that, you know, to me, the reason to measure is so that you can action in the future, right? Like we often say in any situation, Don't measure something that you don't plan to action on, right? If you're not planning to use that information 
to make decisions, to either make a change, to reinforce where you are? Why do you measure it? Why do you care? And I think that as we look at, to go back to your question, how do you know if a space is working? The first question I might ask is, and what are you going to do if it's not? Mm -hmm. Right? So if the answer is, well, we'll know it's not working, but nothing. Sometimes you create an expectation when you ask people about their experience or you ask people what they want or need or, and if the answer is we're, we can't invest in that right now or we're not investing in that right now, you think about measuring in a different way. Maybe you lean more on the quantitative so you have that data, but you're not creating the human expectation that you've asked me a question and now I'm going to expect that you're going to do something with the answer, right? So I think I hate to give a consulting answer to go back to your original question, but it depends. It depends yeah. what the organization really intends to action on. And we both know, and I'm sure listeners you know, know and understand that investments in physical space, capital investments are large. They take a long time. They are significant in the scheme of you know, an organization's bottom line. And so I fully recognize that many organizations are just now, two years after we've all been working in a, you know, two plus years, after we've all been working in this posture, now organizations are starting to say, okay, this is where we're going in the future. Now let's think about looking at those patterns so that we can action in the future, right? There weren't that many organizations that were making major capital investments a year, two years ago, based on the little data that they had. But now I think a lot of organizations, whatever their posture is on return to office, are identifying that this is where the world is going, right? There isn't a lot of benchmarking data yet available. And many, many, most clients, that's the first thing they ask is who's doing what, right? Who, what have you seen? What are other people doing? Because it feels safer to look at what other companies like yours or maybe different from yours, how they're tackling the challenges of this hybrid environment. And I think because there's such a dearth of benchmarking data right now, we don't have years of trends. We don't have a whole bunch of this work, this didn't work. Many companies have been very hesitant to make investments, but I think the measurement piece is what's going to help inform where we go from here. And then of course, build future benchmarks. So, you know, we'll be sitting here in five years you know, five years from now, 10 years from now saying, oh, okay. So in, you know, 2022, we started to see a shift in investments in workplace design. We started to see going from that 60, 40, 70, 30, me to we, to either, you know, even parity or even 60, 40, 70, 30, the other way with a bias toward meaningful collaboration spaces. So I'll pause there. Does that help? Absolutely. I have a lot of thoughts that I need to sort through. So one uh, one thing that I picked up on, which I think is very valid, is like if you survey employees, people will expect to see, don't want to call it consequences, but as you said, actions. And the funny part is like a lot of companies, or let's say it's funny to me, a lot of companies have surveyed their staff 
surprisingly found out they like flexibility. <laughs> and now, how about hmm, that? Yeah, exactly. Don't sure what, not sure what to make out of it. But the reality is, people always wanted flexibility. They just haven't been asked before. So. I was just going to say, nobody ever asked the question explicitly. Yeah. Where would you like to work? And, or I shouldn't say nobody, right? I'm not a fan of absolutes, always yeah. or never, right? Everyone, no one. But in general, most organizations did not ask, where do you find yourself most productive? And it's a really important question. And for many people, I mean, I can say for myself, I've been working out of a backpack off of a laptop for my entire career. Like the last time I had a physical dedicated office, I'm not exaggerating, was 2002. Like I haven't needed one, right? Like we're always mobile. We're always on the go. We're going from here to there. Like your backpack is where you store your you know, physical artifacts and the cloud is where everything else lives. And I think that wasn't something that was accessible in general. And it certainly wasn't something that organization or you know, organizational leaders were considering. That was sort of like the purview of sales or that was, you know, oh, that's fine for those professional services or consultants. But we need, you know, I need a space for my fill in the blank, my dog, my kid, my husband, my wife, you know, my partner, a picture on the desk. I need a chair that's set to my settings. You know, what about where can I hang my sweater, right? Like all those things that were such a critical, critical need prior to the pandemic. I think now we're seeing that when you ask somebody directly and aggregate the data, right? There's still people who would say, I feel most comfortable with a space that's dedicated to me for a variety of reasons. But when you aggregate the data, you're right. In general, many people, for lots of reasons across their life, prefer flexibility. And I would say also prefer being empowered to choose what is most meaningful and what is most effective. And I think it becomes a tricky question because, again, going back to the don't ask people something you don't want to hear the answer to, you know, if an organization is going to mandate, and some have, that everyone's coming back to the office or, you know, we're designing or building or opening this space in order to accommodate our people's needs. And we expect them to be back some large percentage of the time. We're seeing a lot of organizations do that. And in some cases, we're seeing people not showing up because they weren't asked. Or even if they were, there was a, a different perspective from executives who said, well, that's nice but this is how we work. But the horse is out of the barn. Like once people have experienced the way that they feel most productive, they're usually going to pick that way as long as it enables their, you know, personal and business objectives, right? Absolutely. And we've come, if you think about it, we've come a long way in workplace strategy because getting user feedback in Hasn't been a key component always, but it was more like, okay, forecasted headcount, 
Um, yes, growth plan for the next five years. That's the space consumption that we need to cover for. That's right. Um, yeah, let's let's put desks in the space. Great. And then later on, the workplace experience parts coming in, and we're starting like at the project start. These conversations needed to happen. That more looking at what do the users actually do in the space? What would be best for them? But right. then rarely that retrospective happened of like, okay, are people now doing what what they said they would and stuff. So there's been a journey that you're more familiar than I am. I think even for some organizations who intend to or did come back and ask the question, in some cases, the timing of asking those questions is also really critical. So, you know, I think any good or, you know, skilled change manager understands that it takes 90 to 120 days for somebody to really get used to something new, mm-hmm. whether that's a new environment, whether that's new technology, whether that's new coworkers, right? Like lots of changes take a long time to set in before somebody is ready to really opine on, is this working for me? And I think there's, for many organizations, there is a tendency to want to get to the answers, right? If an organization has developed a strategy and then has committed to coming back around at the end and measuring whether it worked, if they're measuring a week after move-in, even a month after move-in, you're very often way too early on the change curve. People are still, you know, trying to figure out like, how do I get there? What, you know, Where's my space? How does this technology work? How does it work with my technology? How does it work based on how I used to know how to do things? And, you know, after three to four months, people usually have sort of settled into their routine and can provide real insight on their experience. Prior to that, people are still, I would call it like almost like overwhelmed by the difference. And so you end up with skewed results, positive or negative, right? There are some people who are, and I would classify myself as one of those people. I like change. I like new things. I'm excited when there's like, I get a new computer and I'm like, yay, I love it. (laughs) Right? Like I like figuring out new tools and technology and software. And I've recognized over the last decade or so that not everyone is like me, right? There are people who are the polar opposite of me. You have people like me who don't do updates because they're afraid functionality will have changed on the programs they're using. (laughs) Exactly. So there are people across all spectrums and probably most of your listeners would know this and probably agree that let's call it 60% of people are sort of in the middle on, you know, across that continuum of comfort with change. But the 20% on either side is who you really need to worry about, right? The, I love change. Some of those people might be like rah, rah, yay at the beginning, but then as they settle in, they're like, oh, I loved it, but it's not exactly what I thought, you know, doesn't have live up to the promise that I was so excited about or, oh, that's interesting. I thought it did this, but it does that or like versus the people who are resistant to change or creates concern at a deep level you know, it's a very human thing to not be concerned about the unknown. And so for those people, it's very hard to 
share your insight or share your opinion on something that is so new without putting that negative spin on it, right? So I think that, you know, the timing of the measurement is pretty important. And then again, so then what, right? Like when you ask people what they think, what are you committing to as the follow-up? Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a naive and maybe very generic question. Why is workplace experience important? So I'm going to flip that question a little bit and say, I don't particular, like, I think experiences are important, right? So I think maybe in, in the past, we thought about like activities, right? Maybe I park or I eat or I meet or I work, right? Like there were nodes along a journey in a day that got a lot of attention. But the entire experience across the workplace was, I would say, less considered for some organizations than the specific finite activities. And I think that for the same reason that you think about general experience, why do I enjoy dining out with friends? Why do I enjoy, if you do, why do I enjoy going to a concert or not? Why do I enjoy, right? Like what are the things about life experience that bring you joy? And I would say that in my view, workplace experience is a life experience. And that's what makes it important. We spend the statistic that I recall from long ago, it's probably much higher now. I think back in the day, 10 years ago, we said people spend 39, 40% of their life working. I would guess that's significantly higher now. That's more than you spend sleeping. That's more than you spend doing most other activities, if not all. And so why shouldn't the experience of where, how, with whom you work be one of the most meaningful in your life, right? Like that to me is why workplace experience is important. But I would say it's important because human experiences are important. And if we don't think about workplace experience as one of the nodes along the human experience, we're missing out on the whole picture. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love what you're saying about that. And I'm um, prone to fall into the generalization trap again, but I'm going to express my thought, thought anyways. What I'm thinking is the concept or the idea of joy at work, like having a joyful experience at work, that's still a new thing for a lot of minds. It's still about, oh, you need to work because you need to earn a living. So you don't need to enjoy that. That's just a necessity. I think that is, I think you're right. But I think that's, in my view, if I'm going to spend 40% of my life or more doing anything, I would hate to think that I'm spending 40% of my time without joy. Yeah. Right? Like, and yeah, look, I don't work for a nonprofit. You know, if you are working in a, for-profit organization, you know, we're not volunteering. Of course, we do this to support our families. We do this to create a contribution, but that doesn't mean to me, it's not a zero sum game. Yeah. You know, because I do this 
to make sure that, you know, my kids have what they need, that I have what I need, that we can live in lovely homes and have lovely other experiences. I would hate to think that it's that you have to trade off the I'll be unhappy so I can be happy in another part of my life. I feel like that's another learning of the pandemic. And this is totally Mm -hmm. a Wendy Heller opinion. I I won't say this Mm -hmm. is, you know, as I said, we don't have a ton of benchmarks yet, but my view and what I've seen so far is that both generationally and post-pandemic, people are much more willing to say now that I require a meaningful experience. That doesn't mean every moment of your work life is filled with joy, just like every moment of your personal life is probably not filled with joy, but it can't feel awful. It can't feel like drudgery. It can't feel like I do this, so I get that, right? Like to me, work and life are an ecosystem. They're part of the same thing, not one and the other. And so I, I think, you know, when you think about engagement, you know, another way for saying feeling joy at work, one way that companies measure that is, are people investing discretionary effort in their work, right? That's Gallup's definition of engagement. So the more engaged, actively engaged people are, the more you can say, oh, okay, well, they are feeling joy. You don't get to that level of engagement without feeling happy, supported, enabled by the work, by your colleagues, right? It doesn't work if you aren't feeling at least some of that joy. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to steer us a bit back into workplace strategy world. Please. Um, <laughs> with the questions like now rethinking future workplace environments, what opportunities do you see in it? So I really think this goes back to, I think we started here. I really feel like the collaboration environment is critical to the future of the workplace. I think in the past, and probably still today, there are for some, working remotely to do individual work is not practical. Whether that's because of the physical space that you live in, whether that's because of the people, adults or small, that you live with, sometimes it's not practical to work at home. And so there will always be a need to have focused space in a workplace. But I think largely the future of workplace is going to be about connecting, collaborating, engaging with your colleagues and your the people with whom and for whom you work. And so I think as we think about where the world is going, that collaboration and planning intentionally for how those spaces need to work. What is the proportion of formal and informal, right? And I, and I would say formal collaboration, I think huddle rooms, conference rooms of various sizes, of various levels of technology, of various approaches to creating meaningful connection around formal work. And, you know, in addition, I think about informal collaboration spaces. Many organizations are looking at how do they leverage dining as co-working, right? How do they think about, and this is not new, but I think is gaining ever more importance, the cafeteria that used to be open 
at most three hours a day is a significant amount of real estate. How do you re-envision that space so that it enables real, meaningful, connected experiences, colleagues building trust outside of a meeting, outside of collaboration? And so I think thinking about what are the moments that matter? What are the types of spaces that enable those moments, both formal and informal? And then what is the proportion of those types of spaces to the whole spectrum of other spaces? Like I said a few minutes ago, we're not going to ever get away from some people, some tasks, some experiences require a closed door, require privacy, require quiet. That's just, again, human nature. If I'm going to analyze a giant data set, if I'm looking at spreadsheets for a few hours, I'm probably not going to elect to do that in a cafe. But some people might. But I think those types of work experiences are really need to be accommodated also. I just think that there now are many more places and choices for people to choose to do those types of work other than the workplace. Yeah, more of an ecosystem of choices. And it it is the tricky part that everybody works and functions differently and that actually some people might like the buzz in a coffee totally. place to go into the to the zone and focus on something. So it's really hard to general again we're at the topic of generalization to be like this is going to work for everybody. Let's right. build it. And that's where the benchmarks, the pre and post measurement, the data analysis, all are really important inputs to developing the future workplace strategy, right? Because you're making a 10, 50, 100 million dollar investment to change your workplace footprint across a portfolio or even in, you know, major sites, that level of investment requires data. And, you know, so it goes back to what do you measure? How do you measure it? And then how do you communicate the actions coming out of that measurement, which then are the investments in the future of workplace? Yeah. So you've worked as an interior designer, you've worked in corporate, like occupier side of corporate real estate. Where do you think you're benefiting now from having that hyphen marks outsider view on things? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, having not grown up in professional services, right? Having walked in the shoes or, you know, I'll use a more office term, sat in the chair of somebody, you know, of many of our clients going through some of the same issues that I experienced or my colleagues experienced. I think that I have a unique and valuable perspective to be able to say, I have empathy for what you're going through, but I also have enough distance that I can say, I totally get that. If I were in your shoes, I'd probably be reacting or thinking or feeling. I did feel that way when I was in-house. But as somebody who's now had the opportunity to zoom out, to see XYZ ABC companies who maybe are all dealing with the same issue, but dealing with it differently, I think it's pretty valuable to be able to both disconnect from like the emotional side of 
what people, what, you know, our clients are going through to be able to have that distance and say, yes, I understand that this is, you feel a sense of responsibility to Sally or Tom or, you know, Alex, who wants you to do A, B, or C. I don't have to care about that. I have the ability to think broader and then bring you insights. I also think that it's useful as a, an outsider. I'm not invested emotionally in whether or not our client chooses to execute a strategy that we've helped them develop, right? I've worked on prior, right prior to the pandemic, I've worked on projects where we worked for a number of months on a roadmap or, and for all the right reasons that wasn't, it didn't move forward. Right. And I think if I had been on the inside and I know when I was on the inside, if something that I had planned for many months wasn't implemented or wasn't actioned, I felt a personal sense of, oh, well, maybe I wasn't smart enough or I wasn't good enough or I, you know, the work I did wasn't right. I think as the outside looking in, I can say there's lots of good reasons why this strategy that we developed or this approach or this roadmap made perfect sense with the data and the inputs we had at the time. And it's, a reasonable, meaningful framework that will take you to the future, no matter what the inputs, but it's okay, right? I don't, I am able to say this isn't about me. This is about the experience, the client, the, to me, that's a pretty valuable, useful perspective for our clients to be able to lean on. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's been my experience. Yeah. I have two last ones. One is, if you could magically solve any workplace problem, what would it be? I love this question. And it to me, it's pretty easy. I think that the most challenging workplace problem is the lack of flexibility and agility in the spaces that we have now. And even in the spaces that are being designed, like it's extraordinarily expensive to design spaces that are truly flexible, right? And not flexible, meaning I have to call in the FM, they have to change out this, this, or this, the technology only works if you sit over here, right? Like that experience is pervasive. If I could wave a magic wand and change one thing, it would be that workplaces are magically and meaningfully follow the user, right? Like if I am sitting in a space and I need to collaborate with somebody on at a distance and somebody in person, I want that space to automatically shift to postures that make sense, to technology that makes sense, to size and space that makes sense. That's magical thinking. But that to me is the biggest workplace challenge, right? If we had that solved, then the major investments, companies wouldn't need to, they could test a lot more. They could try a lot more. They could, it would be less risky to experiment. And I feel like to me, that ability to create real 
agile, flexible space is, and, you know, of course, measure it, but you asked about only one thing. That to me is like the North Star of magical workplace experiences. Yeah, it would remove, I would imagine in this magical world, a lot of the friction points as well for the users of the space of like, oh my God, it's totally. 12 cables everything now, which works. one do I put in? Yeah, yeah everything works. It doesn't matter if you have a, you know, an iPhone, an Android, a PC, a Mac, everything works. And it works how you think it should work as opposed to, I need 10 pages of directions to help me log in for the first, second and 10th time. Yeah. Okay, last one then. Who else should I have on the podcast? And is there something you would like to ask them? Hmm. Yeah, so I recently had the experience um, with Cornet Global. I, you know, Deloitte is a gold sponsor for Cornet Global and Cornet convened a group a few weeks ago and, you know, a group of leaders across various types of organizations that are sponsors. And we talked about a lot of things, you know, some of the things that you and I spoke about today. But one of the things that we didn't speak about, but that I think is really critical when we think about workplace experience is thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion across all spectrums when it comes to workplace experience, whether that's neurodiversity, whether that is creating inclusive spaces across generations, across all types of people, right? I think that that's emerging. I don't see a lot of organizations thinking about that. And so one of the people I was most impressed by, I don't think that you've had her on yet, Shelly Wright, who is the chief DEI officer for Unispace. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was really impressed by her perspective and how they're thinking about these really important questions. And so I think as far as what I would like to ask, I think I might wonder for an organization that's prioritizing DEI, what does that look like for spaces five years from now? How are things designed differently? How are you thinking about measuring differently? How are you thinking about you know, again, qualitative versus quantitative. How do you get all those inputs in a way that is equitable and in a way that is meaningful, right? For surveys aren't necessarily inclusive, as we know. And data measures only certain types of inputs. So I'd be pretty interested in both how are you thinking about applying the DEI strategies in physical space? And then how do you know if they're working? Yes, I'd be very curious as well. That's a great, great suggestion. Thank you so very much for that. But also for the rest of the conversation, that was really, really joyful for me. Amazing. <laughs> so I'm so for, glad. For joining me in this experience. I loved it too. I really, this was, thank you for including me, inviting me to be here. And I look forward to listening to more Workplace Leader podcasts in the future. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there's more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. We've just released the definitive guide to workplace analytics, for instance. Or tune in to our next episode of The Workplace Leader.